Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this week's episode in Her Space. If I'm having a conversation with a friend or someone that I feel close and connected to, then how I dive into that conversation may be a little bit different, right? So I know that if I'm going into a conversation with a friend, the consequences of if this conversation doesn't go well is different than the consequences of if the conversation with my boss doesn't go well, right? And so I may be more willing to take more risk and be really and truly more open-minded in the conversation with my friend versus my boss. Today's episode is sure to provide you with motivation, inspiration, or even a fresh perspective. If you have any aha moments or if you feel comforted throughout the episode, lady, please leave us a review and tell us what we're doing right so we can stay on track. Also, we release episodes every Friday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit herspacepodcast.com and enter your email address to get updates about our live events and all of the new beginnings that we have for this year. Welcome to Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here from the Her Space Podcast. Do you have a burning question you're dying to get feedback on? Do you want an unbiased perspective on a situation you're facing? If so, visit herspacepodcast.com and click Ask Dr. Dom under the Start Here option. Every Tuesday, I'll choose a few questions and answer them at random. Okay, our quote of the day. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. That quote comes to us from James Baldwin. So T, today we are diving into a conversation that is inviting us to face some things that can be a bit challenging, can be a bit uncomfortable. And so... When I think about this topic of having conversations with white people, particularly around microaggressions and the current racial climate, what are your thoughts? 
I will say, Dom, one thing that came to mind first when we were having this conversation or when we planned to talk about this is that, I mean, we know that Black people are not monolithic. You and I, what we're going to share today is not representative of the Black community. And lady, I just want to say, as you're listening today, you may have, you may be a Black person with a white partner, right? You might be one of those Black people with lots of white friends, right? We all have different upbringings and environments that we're raised in, or you might even have a white parent. And so our experiences our processing, it will vary, but hopefully you can take something away. And I think for me, Dom, it makes me think about, you know, what has my experience been like with white people? Because over the years, my experiences have shifted drastically. And so in order to answer that question, it takes me back to my childhood, right? Being raised in San Diego, where I had a very diverse group of friends. One of my best friends was white. One of my other best friends was Mexican. And then we had so many different races, you know, nationality, people, you know, just various people that I grew up around. And I remember being raised in this predominantly white area and I would like call home to Philly, like speak to my family. They'd be like, you sound like a white girl. And so I had a very different experience as a black person being raised in that type of environment. But then when I moved to Philly, (laughs) when I was a preteen, I was just like, oh, damn, am I really black? Because I went to school in the hood. And so I didn't really, you know, fit in with my people. And it's been a very interesting journey for me, I'll say. And so for me, you know, being raised in San Diego, being this black valley girl, right? And then moving to the hood in Philly or going to a hood school in Philly, it was a huge culture shock. And so for me, Dom, it was sort of like an identity crisis where I was like, where do I fit in with black people? Because I know I'm not white. They say that I'm white and I talk white and I'm, you know, a square and all this stuff, but then I don't fit in with my own people, even though we have the same color. So for me, it's been a very interesting journey of figuring out where I fit in, figuring out, you know, how to interact with white people after, you know, having been in this public, you know, Philly school system where it was sort of like a different culture than I was accustomed to. And so I think for me, Dom, yeah, I mean, the best thing I can say is like, it's been a journey and I know we're going to dive in deeper into that, but I'm curious to also hear about your experiences too, because I also think about church, right? I had a lot of black leaders in church, but when I think about my schooling, a lot of the people, a lot of the authority figures in life outside of church were white people, whether it was the teachers, whether it was, and this is kind of a mixture of in church, but whether you're in like Bible school and you see a white Jesus up in there, Mm. which is like, hmm, you know, you see all the authority figures are white whether it's the cops coming to your house because of domestic violence, which is something that was in my past. So I think it really shapes it. And so that's kind of like an overview, Don, but I'm curious to hear what has your experience been like just with white people in general? You know, I'm from New Orleans and New Orleans has been predominantly black for a really long time, right? And I say really long time because I'm not a historian and I don't know the exact dates. But I know also now with gentrification, the numbers of Black folks in New Orleans are decreasing. And that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. But what I can recall growing up is that I was in public school where the majority of the people, I'd say over 90% of the people that I were around were Black. We had a mix of teachers, but we had an overwhelming number. The majority of our teachers were also Black. So I think I had a different experience than some other people across the country, right? And I think that the the times when I was most 
around white people was at church because I grew up Catholic. And the church that we went to was a mixed church. And so there were a lot of black families as well as a lot of white families there. As I got older and when I started college, college was probably the first time when I was in a space where I could look around and count on one hand the number of black students in the classroom. Wow. Then getting jobs at like college, graduate school, having jobs, the majority of those spaces were white. Except for when I taught at Texas Southern, which is an HBCU, but they were white folks that work at TSU, right? So it's not that I've never gone without interacting with white people, but I've also been privileged to be able to be around people who look like me. And I know that that's not always everyone's experience because even in spaces where I could count on my hand, the number of black folks, there were opportunities for me to engage with people who looked like me. That sounds amazing, actually, Don, because I think about, you know, from a young age being the only black in my class, right? Not the only black woman or a girl, but the only black person. And, you know, those times of the year when we, it was Black History Month and we talked about slavery, those were the worst because, you know, everybody looking at you like you can provide live experience of, you know, your time in that era. And it's just like, y'all, what are you, what are you doing? So I think that sounds amazing, your experience. And that's new for me because I didn't really know that that was your background. I will say, Dom, for me, after going to the hood school, you know, then going back to the suburbs and going to a predominantly white school, I was kind of back and forth in these different spaces, but I felt pretty comfortable being in a diverse space because that's kind of what I came from. After those experiences of being in schooling, It wasn't until I moved to Silicon Valley and started working in tech that I began to have like white acquaintances and friends as an adult. And for me, that was a new experience, Don, because this is not, I I mean, ever since my best friend who was, I mean, we were in grade school together. So ever since that white friend that I had, I never really had any super close like white friends that I, you know, cared about until adulthood. And so for me, this has been a new journey for me because I think many of us have grown up in households where it's like, Mm, we don't trust no white people. That's just what you're taught because of the history, because of, you know, the ways in which people that we know have been slighted by them in the workplace, right? They may, you know, hold information or you have this air sometimes that it's like, it's a business relationship, even if you thought it was a friendship. So there are many things that have happened to people that we know, lots of trauma, lots of bad experiences. And I'm sure other people can say the same thing about black people, right? I know a lot of friends where in their household, dark-skinned people and black people, you don't bring a black person home, right, to date. And there are other conversations that happen in their household about black people. And many of us black people, we're taught the same thing about white people. I know some of the, you know, black guys in my family when I was growing up, it was like, don't bring no white girl home, right? And so I think about me being faced with all these things that I heard growing up, but then now having white people that I care about deeply, it's like, whoa, this is interesting. You know, I think what... The conversation that we kind of want to dive into today is considering the current climate that we're in, right? The current racial and political climate. I know that what I've seen on the internet, what conversations that you and I have had, conversations that I've had with other friends and colleagues over these last couple of months around 
okay, now it feels as if a couple of things. One, white people want to engage us in dialogue, right? And then two, we still have to deal with being black in the workplace. There are still moments where we experience microaggressions. We experience discrimination. We experience aggressive acts of racism against us. So where do we begin, T? Where do we begin? That's a good point, Dom. I mean, it's definitely uncomfortable. It's tough, but I'm with you. I have also realized that the white people in my life now are definitely open to having these conversations. So when it comes to having these conversations, Dom, I think about what are the types of conversations that we might have with them, right? And so I know one is like explaining microaggressions. And microaggressions are basically those, I want to say commonplace verbal or behavioral indignities, right? Whether it's intentional or unintentional, because your intent doesn't really, you know, always align with the impact. And so these are things that typically communicate a hostile, derogatory, or negative attitude toward a stigmatized group, right? So for example, Dom, being in the workplace and trying to explain to this person why it's not okay to touch my hair right, or why it's not okay to give me a hip hop nickname that I didn't ask for and call me like T Dizzle out of nowhere. And it's just like, that's not appropriate. And that is microaggressions. Right. And so it's like, how do you have those conversations? So that's one thing that comes to mind for me, Dom. I want to give you just a little list and maybe we can talk about the tips, but I want to hear what difficult conversations come up for you as well. The next I would say is racism. And I think that's a tricky one because, you know, I've noticed lately, Dom, there are lots of white people that I've had to unfollow that I may have gone to school with because they're true colors show. And I remember this guy I went to school with, he was really buying into this respectability politics. And he's like, yeah, you know, something like if black people were to just do X, Y, Z, you know, pull up their pants and do this thing, then they'd be successful. And And I was just like, damn, like that was just so hurtful for me because it's like, you really don't understand how deep white supremacy and racism runs in this country. We can be those perfect citizen and still be murdered by police officers. There is no excuse, but I think a lot of people are bamboozled and they believe that, oh, well, black people could just do X, Y, Z. Some black people even believe it. Right. If black people could just do X, Y, Z, then all their problems will be solved. No, black people are at the bottom of the totem pole for a reason, you know? And so I think conversations about race. And then also, this is another one that's really interesting, Dom, especially for white people. They're white to us and they're white in the U.S. because the U.S. has changed who they deem as white over the years to allow a larger majority to fit into the white class, I want to say. But there was a time where Jewish people were not considered white, right? And I think about the black plight and that being another difficult conversation to have with certain white people, because when you think about, you know, me being a woman from a very tough upbringing, right? And then a black woman at that, there's just a certain level of, you know, trauma and struggle that I've had to experience. But I remember talking to a white woman at one of my previous jobs and she had a rough upbringing, like she had a rough upbringing and she was just like, she didn't understand how you know, people could just make this assumption about white people and say, oh, well, you're better off or you have some type of privilege. And she's like, no, but I had to struggle. My family was poor and she didn't get it until someone had shared an analogy with her about a baseball field and basically letting her know, yes, you may have struggled. No one's taken that away, but you were born on second base. Black people, many of us were born in the parking lot. So we had to walk to the fucking field. Right. Try to get the first space. And so it's just a difference as far as you may not feel privileged, but it's like your skin color affords you a certain privilege that you may not be aware of. So those are three conversations, Dom, that come to mind for me. 
you know, the microaggressions, racism, and then the black plight in general that are typically really tough. And I know we'll talk a bit more about that, but I want to hear from you. What are conversations that have historically been difficult for you when it comes to chatting with white people? Well, I think about the conversations that more recently are coming up, right, of white folks reaching out. Because, you know, right at the start of the summer, when the protests regarding George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were taking off and there were all these things on the Internet about check on your black friends. Right. So then you have white folks reaching out to their black colleagues and their black friends to kind of say, oh, I acknowledge what you're going through. I'm sorry that you're dealing with this as a black person. And there's layers to it for me personally, right? I can't speak to how other people respond. And we can dive into, later on, we'll dive into tips on how to navigate those conversations. But for me, those conversations are different. My intention and approach when I'm engaging a white person who I know or have a closer relationship with is different than how I'm going to engage a white person who I'm not as close to. And so, and I think that that's an important distinction as well. I think that the other types of conversations that can be difficult are those conversations when you have a white parent or a white partner or a white family member. That hasn't been my experience, but I know that that is a difficult conversation that lots of other Black folks are having to engage in because those are people that they truly love. And so how do you engage in the dialogue with someone who's in your household, right? Someone who you may share children with, who you share a bed with. How do you engage in those difficult dialogues? So those are the two that come up for me. That makes sense, Tom. Those are really good examples. And I will say, I know that our girl, Rachel Cargill, look her up. She has resources. I remember her posting a resource maybe a couple years ago about how to have those conversations about race at like Thanksgiving. And so go to her page. She has tons of resources about how to, you know, chat with white people about those difficult topics. But I do want to say, Dom, I want to shout out some of the white people in my life because I messaged them late last night, like, hey, Can I get your perspective on this? Because I know I could bring my own assumptions on what white people think about and how they interact with black people. So I did get some feedback from a few white people in my life. And I just want to shout them out and appreciate and just share my appreciation for them being vulnerable enough for me to just like send them this message and share. So one person said that he sees the discrepancies in racism and tries to be mindful not to offend. And so he gave me an example of being in the workplace and stating how If he had a white colleague that was giving a presentation and if he did something very impressive and like broke down a certain system, he would feel comfortable going to that colleague and he doesn't find an issue with saying, man, that that was so articulate. You did a great job, X, Y, Z. But based on his experiences and what he knows about how that word can be offensive to black people, he said he would definitely think twice about saying it to me or another black colleague. He knows the weight that it holds for us because of, yeah. And some people don't know that, right? Some people don't know. And I've had people say I was articulate. And there was a time in life where I was like, oh, cool, thanks. And then as I began to learn more about the nuances behind that, and I just noticed that oftentimes, in my experience, I didn't see white people saying it to other white people. And so then in my eyes, it was like, well, you're saying you're articulate. It sounds like there's this 
unspoken for a black person behind it. You know what I mean? And exactly. So, and so that was one point of feedback that I got that I thought was really interesting from a pretty aware, I want to say, most of the people I chatted with, they were white, they're pretty aware white people. So <laughs> just FYI. But the next person said that, and these were all men that happened to get back to me, the women, I didn't hear back from them because I guess it was a short timeline. But he said that he realizes his privilege and he said, you know, he sees the inequality. It's one thing to hear about it, but when you see people are going through it, you know, it, it's definitely tough to see. But he was saying, when and how do we have these conversations? Because for him, it doesn't feel authentic. Like you were saying, Dom, to reach out every time a black man is murdered and say, oh, hey, friend, I hope you're well. I see you. This shit happens so often. It's like his question for me was like, how do we have these ongoing conversations that are important? But how do we have them in a way that's authentic and in a way that doesn't have to sort of follow a tragedy, if that makes sense? How can this be an ongoing thing? I don't have an answer for that. But I think this is a good question that needs to be considered, right? Like, how do we have those conversations? And then he was also saying how some of the white people that he knows, they may see the injustices, but they're scared to offend and don't even know where to start or what to say. Because I think for, I will say for the well-intentioned white people, yes, there are a lot of white supremacists and racists out there, right? For the well-intentioned white people, I think one of their greatest fears is being labeled racist when that's not how they're trying to show up, right? So that's his feedback. And then the last thing, Dom the last person said that the question that I asked him about providing feedback for this, it was a big question for him. And it brought up a lot of stuff, which I can imagine based on personal experiences. But he said that, you know, right now in the world, we want more honest and authentic communication. And many of us have empathy and curiosity and some trauma. And when we come together, when people come together and their trauma intersects with each other, you get misunderstandings, you get some hurt, and you also get perpetuated injustices. And I thought that was really um, a great way to sort of phrase that because we're all coming to the table. Yes, we as Black people, we have our own experience. And I've never really, it's been very hard for me, Dom, to see the plight of white people, like white people that are not well off. Like I was giving you an example about the woman who like came from a rough upbringing. For me, sometimes I am so blinded by the Black plight and what I go through that it is sometimes hard to see what white people go through, some white people. And then also, Dom, I think that sometimes there's this very strong frustration because for so long, I think we have been unseen, we have been unheard. And to see people, sometimes, I don't know if it's envy. I have to maybe explore this within myself, but sometimes I remember being on the, on BART and there was this white guy just lying back with his head back and his mouth open and he was knocked out. I was so angry. And I think this was around the time that Nia Wilson had got murdered the young black girl who had got murdered on BART, I would say suspected white supremacist. He stabbed her and her sister, but killed Nia Wilson. And I remember looking at that white guy and I just, I had so much anger and that's my own personal stuff. I had so much anger because I was like, damn, it must be fucking nice. It must be right. nice to be able to just lie back in public with not a care in the world and just sleep. I could never, okay? Like I would, ne I would not ever do that because I have to be mindful of my safety. And so I think sometimes there's a frustration that, damn, white people just don't get it. Or you just don't know what we experience, you know? And so I think for me, sometimes it makes those conversations difficult because of the lack of understanding and also because of the, the privilege, you know? Yes. And I think, you know, there's multiple responses that I have <laughs> to the <laughs> that you received, right? <laughs> so I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that we are living in a country that operates in white supremacy, right? Because we are operating in a country that focuses or that lives in white supremacy, I think it's important for us to always acknowledge that each one of us 
has a role in that, right? Whether we own up to it or not, right? We all are like kind of complicit in this white supremacist country. Wait, um, dive in more. What does that mean? So to me, what how I look at it is that when you have this system that's set up, every person who is a part of that system has a role, right? And so as Black people, the thing that we are constantly battling against is trying to fight to reduce white supremacy. But part of what we have to acknowledge within ourselves in order for us as Black people to make change is that there are ways in which we are complicit in uplifting white supremacy. You know, so for instance, if I engage in respectability politics and trying to police other Black folks, Mm. and I'm engaging in this respectability politics, where is this respectability politics coming from? What is it rooted in? It's rooted in white supremacy. So in that moment, I am complicit. So you're saying if you say things like, oh, if only black women will stop twerking, if only black men will pull their pants up, if only so making excuses for why black people are where they are based on their behavior, which is not true. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so I think that once we can acknowledge that, then that allows us to take the conversation a little bit further. Right. I think the other part of the conversation that can be uncomfortable is for white folks to acknowledge that because their role in white supremacy affords them privilege, but that there will be times in which their actions are perceived as racist. Every single white person in America, I don't care how progressive or liberal you are as a white person in America. Because of your inherent privilege, there will be times in which something you say or do is racist. Now, again, I'm not saying that that's your intention, but intention and impact are two different things. And um, can you give a few subtle examples on like when those situations happen that may just like go over some like a white person's head if they're like, wait. I'm not racist, but I did a racist thing, right? Or I thought in a racist way. Can you give a few examples on that? You're sitting in your car doing whatever you're doing in your car, right? Who knows? And it's broad daylight. And you see a black person walking down the street. And your first instinct is to check to make sure your door is locked. That's racist. Because what Mm -hmm. is your assumption in that moment? Your assumption in that moment is that that black person is a danger to you. And that thought that black person is a danger to you is rooted in white supremacy and is rooted in that the narrative. Right. And if you're unsure about what that narrative is, go back and listen to our episode from last week where we talk about what the narrative is and the detrimental impact that it has on us as black folks. Another instance, let's say now this is a pre-COVID example. But let's say you work in a department store, Bloomingdale's, okay? Young black woman is walking around Bloomingdale's and you work in the perfume department, 
and you see her walk by and something catches her eye and she stops. You stop chatting with your coworkers to watch her and you don't take your eye off her the entire time. Meanwhile, five other customers have walked by you. Yeah. That's racist. Right? Yeah, those are good examples. Dom, it also makes me think about like the unconscious bias. And we did this, our diversity lead at work had us do this, uncon- well, we did an unconscious bias training and she gave us an example of how there are these two resumes, exactly the same content, but one person's name is like Jamal and the other person's name is like John. And literally, like clockwork, employers chose John over Jamal in a great degree based on the name. And there was another one with like, I want to say stereotypical black woman name as opposed to a stereotypical white woman name. And I think about situations like that too. And it's like, that is racist. Do you know what I mean? Or wouldn't that be racist? Or is it unconscious bias? Okay, cool. Okay, I'm like, I think so. Okay. (laughs) Just make it sure. Racism can be rooted in unconscious bias and conscious bias. But I think that oftentimes the people that engage in that have these unconscious biases don't view themselves Mm -hmm. as racist. Exactly. And the reality is that every one of us have unconscious biases, right? That shape how we engage with other people. And so I think the thing is, is that to engage in these uncomfortable conversations, it takes all of us being aware of what we are coming into the room with, right? So as a Black person, me being aware of how I'm being perceived and what the other person may be coming in with. As the white person, being aware of your positionality and how you may be perceived in that moment, right? And I think too that what makes it so uncomfortable is that as black folks, we are doing so much juggling. I think that there is a lot of emotional labor that we carry as black people that we should not have to carry. And so for me, being mindful of not wanting to continue to carry that emotional labor is what kind of guides how I approach these conversations. Because I recognize that what happens is that we experience racial battle fatigue, right? Which is this constant feeling of exhaustion. So let's say that we are in a works environment or maybe our home environment where we are daily engaging in these conversations about race or having to justify our experiences. and. As we are constantly having to justify our experiences, that breeds exhaustion. Every day you're having to explain to people why you are deserving of being treated like a human being. That's exhausting. We should not have to engage in that conversation. And maybe it's not explicitly stated hey, white person, I need you to treat me like a human being. But when we have to have that conversation around don't touch my hair, or we have to have that conversation around, yes, we do need to look at Keisha and Jamal's resumes 
and why we need to look at their resumes. Or when we have to explain that we don't need to know this Black person's entire life story to believe Mm. what they just shared with us. That leads to racial battle fatigue. And that affects our physical, mental, emotional well-being. Amen to that. And when we are constantly engaging in that, I could see where it makes it hard for us to feel motivated to engage in some of those uncomfortable conversations. You know, when I think about the black community, there are some of us who are... I want to say not fit to have some of these conversations. And what I mean by that is like, for me personally, I'm not interested in having race conversations with white people. That's just not where I'm at. I think I need to do more work on myself personally in order to have those deeper conversations. And honestly, with my mental health plan and where I am right now, I just don't have the capacity or interest to do that. However, there are other uncomfortable conversations that I may have around, you know, things in the workplace and addressing the microaggressions and maybe being a bit more reactive. But there are some people, I think about Rachel, we mentioned earlier, that's her work. That's her life's work. That's what she does. And so sometimes it's okay to forward people over to the experts to have that conversation so that you don't have to you know, expend that emotional labor. I will say we have quite a few tips on having uncomfortable conversations with white people. Dom and I both sort of compiled our own tips here. And so there may be some tips that you know, one of us has shared that the other one's like, mm, I don't know how I feel about this one. And that's all good because these are tips that you can take from based on how they resonate with you. And there are other tips where we're like, yes, girl, like, I'm glad you added that. So now I'm going to pass it over to you to dive into our first one and I'll take the next one. Yeah. So I think, you know, the tips that we compiled, like the first tip right out of the gate is what sets the stage for both of us, right? and how we approached these tips in general. So the first tip is to know your audience and context. And I think, T, that goes right back to what you were just saying about, okay, knowing where you are and who you're going to be engaging with and whether or not you need to refer them to someone else, right? So if you know that the conversation you're about to dive into is with your boss and you don't feel comfortable having a full-on dialogue because that's your boss and they're in a position of evaluative power over you, then you don't want to totally avoid the conversation, but you don't have to get into a full-on deep dive because you want to protect your energy. You want to respect your positionality. So know your audience and the context. I love that, Don. That is spot on. That's a great grounding tip too to begin with the others. I would say number two is being open-minded. And the reason I say that is because in my conversations, as hard as it is, I said this before, one of my big struggles was... I want to say not letting go, but sort of holding the black plight and understanding things from someone else's perspective. I've been able to do this in my personal life with people who look like me, but it it has been very challenging for me to, like I said before, see things from a white person's perspective or understand or not even understand, but hear them out as far as how they did not understand 
their ignorance or their lack of, you know, acknowledgement or understanding about a black person's experience. And so that's why I say be open-minded because I think that if the goal of the conversation is for learning and understanding, it is important for us to also show up correctly if that's what we're doing in this conversation, right? And so be in a place of, you know, openness so that we can receive, hear, learn, grow, and evolve. So I think that is important because we all do have different experiences. Okay. So tip number three is to think ahead regarding consequences of your words and actions. And so with that one, I think that kind of goes back to, Terry, what you were saying about being open-minded, right? And also knowing your audience and your context. So if I'm having a conversation with a friend or someone that I feel close and connected to, then how I dive into that conversation may be a little bit different, right? So I know that if I'm going into a conversation with a friend, the consequences of if this conversation doesn't go well is different than the consequences of if the conversation with my boss doesn't go well, right? And so I may be more willing to take more risk and be really and truly more open-minded in the conversation with my friend versus my boss. And so just, you know, remember to think ahead regarding your consequences of your words and your actions, because, you know, also I I do want to add a caveat too that if you're willing to go all out and you know that your actions may lead to you maybe going to jail, right? Because sometimes we're there, right? I think about every person that's out there protesting, that's a risk. And so, but that is a risk that we are willing to take when we go out there and we protest. So just thinking ahead and knowing what the potential consequences are going to be before you dive into that dialogue or that action. I love that. Great tip there, Tom. I would say number four is setting ground rules or safe words. And that all depends on what type of conversation you're having. The reason I chose this tip is because I envision a world where at some point in the future, I may want to you know, pull my one of my white friends aside and say, hey, let's have a conversation about race because I'm very a curious person. I want to understand what it's been like from your perspective. And so I think because I can be sensitive about some of those topics, it might be nice to have some ground rules or a safe word so that if we get to a, an impasse and we're like, mm, we're not seeing eye to eye here, this is such a sensitive topic that's filled with so many emotions. We may need to use that cold word or safe word and then take a break, right? Or we may need to let the person know, you know, in a safe way that I feel triggered and maybe we need to like shift or move in a different direction. So that's why I chose that one. If it's those types of conversations. Let me ask a quick question on that one though. Would you recommend this particular tip if we're having a conversation with an employer? I think it depends. Like I'm trying to think of an example of like what that would be. I'm trying to think, Dom, I'm trying to think of a real life. Do you have a real life example? Cause that would help me. I don't, I'm just curious no? about okay. like, is so if I'm having a difficult dialogue with my boss, how would that look yeah. to set ground rules or safe words? Or is this a context? Is that an example where maybe that's not appropriate? 
see, I'm down for like anything is possible. I think there is a world where it could be appropriate. In the work setting, the first thing that comes to mind for me for tip number four would be like, if it's a diversity or unconscious bias training where you have a, you know, a group of people and you're going to be having these difficult conversations, that is a place in the work environment where I can hundred percent hands down, see you using safe words and Mm -hmm. setting ground rules because differing perspectives coming to the place. But if I'm chatting with my manager about something, I think maybe a disclaimer of like, this is a sensitive topic, but it depends on the manager too. Like, I don't know how ground rules, me coming into the you know conversation with ground rules might be perceived to the manager. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying about like, know your audience. Mm-hmm. But I do think, we, lady, if you have an example, you have to uh, DM us. Yes. I do think there is a world where it could exist. That's a good question though. Okay. So I agree that it goes back to knowing your audience. And if you have that type of relationship with your manager, then... Yes, you could set ground rules for the conversation. So tip number five is to keep the focus of the conversation away from comforting the other person. So for me, that tip came about based on white folks reaching out to check in, right? For some white people, them reaching out to check in is for them to assuage their guilt, They want to be let go of the guilt of being a white person in America right now, right? And so they reach out to you to see how you're doing, but it's not necessarily genuine. I was going to say, Dom, also that, but then also the sort of good Samaritan vibe where it's like, okay, cool. Checkbox. I reached out to a black person today. All right, let me get back to work. I feel good. You know what I mean? So I think it could be a combination of those one or two. You know what I mean? Right. I agree. And so I think then it becomes a matter of, again, knowing your audience, right? But the key is whether they are genuine or not to keep the conversation away from comforting them. As Black folks, particularly as Black women, we have been socialized to believe that we have to take care of and comfort everyone. And We don't have to in that moment because in that moment, again, whether they're being genuine or not, the assumed intention is for them to check in on us. Real quick, Dom, because I know we're almost at the end of our episode. Can you give an example of what it looks like to comfort someone while they're reaching out about that? Just I want to make sure that we're clear on that. So someone reaches out to you and they say, hey, Terry. I just wanted to check in on you, you know, with everything happening, I wanted to see how you're doing. I just feel so bad about everything that's going on right now. Your instinct to comfort them would be to say, oh, thank you for checking on me. I'm so sorry that you're feeling this way. Pause. Hold on. Mm -hmm. Let's step back because. Their intention is supposed to be to check on us. So instead of responding with, thank you, because one saying, oh, thank you, that's giving them praise, right? In that moment, we don't necessarily have to do that. We are not obligated to do that. And then two, when we, the next piece is when we step in to say, oh, I'm so sorry you're feeling that way. What usually comes next? The conversation then shifts to them. So in that moment, instead of saying those things, you say your response can be something as simple as, yes, things are really tough right now. 
I think what's going to be most helpful for me is to take a break from all of it. And here's how you can help me if that's what you want to do. Right. If, if you're looking to give them a tip on how to help you out. I appreciate that, Dom, too, because it sounds like oftentimes we rob ourselves of an opportunity to be cared for or comforted by putting it on the other person. So I'm glad that you painted that example. Beautiful. And the next one, number six, is have a purpose or goal in mind. And what I was thinking here is, for me, honestly, really with anything in life at this point, I'm always like, okay, what is the purpose? What is the goal? I don't like to just go into a conversation without having like an end result. Am I trying to educate the person? Am I trying to learn? Am I trying to, you know, let them know how they've offended me? I think getting clear on that will allow you to sort of build out your conversation appropriately and make sure that you focus on your main point. So I think always having a purpose or goal in mind for specific conversations, especially if it's like in the workplace, you don't want to kind of ramble and go off on tangents. I think being very clear on what am I here for and what is the goal of this conversation is important. Yes, I agree. I think that that is a good one to, because again, it, it helps you also having that goal in mind helps you to also focus on, okay, well, what are the potential consequences here? How do I engage in this dialogue? Like it really helps set, set the tone. The next tip is to use I statements. And I statements can be really hard for some of us, but I would encourage us to really try hard to use those I statements in those conversations. Because what that does is it allows the focus to center on you and what it is that you are thinking and feeling and what it is that you need while also making it clear, hopefully, that how you're speaking is from your perspective and not representative of all Black people in America. Love that. And also takes the person off the defensive because no one can deny the way that you feel, right? Right. So that's powerful. Number eight is leaning into curiosity. I think it's always important to lean into curiosity because when we make assumptions, sometimes that can cause division and sometimes we can, you know, just bring a certain energy to the conversation. So I love to ask questions to get clarity. Like, what did you mean when you said this? Right. Mm -hmm. So I want to understand your perspective before I'm like, yo, you racist piece. Like, let me understand. What did you mean when you said this? Because that will give me more insight. And sometimes I know for me, when I shut the hell up and listen, I get some gems. Okay. So lean into curiosity. Yes. I I love that because I think that allows us to really learn more about their perspective. And that allows us to see, is their attention genuine or not? Exactly. Which can change how we might approach the conversation. And our final tip is to pour into yourself before and after the conversation. Now, granted, I know that sometimes those conversations come out of nowhere, so you might not be able to pour into yourself before, right? But if you know the conversation is coming, you pour into yourself before and after the conversation is done. And what that looks like, at least for me, and what I like to tell other folks to do is to, one, go through all these tips that we've already outlined, right? So think about how you're going to approach each of those tips, but to take some deep breaths, to really ground and center yourself into the moment that's approaching. Maybe it may also mean listening to some uplifting music. Whatever you need to get you into the headspace to dive into that dialogue, right? And then afterwards, if you can, 
giving yourself some space to just breathe. Because again, we know that diving into these difficult conversations can require a lot of emotional labor on our part, right? And so you want to make sure that as this conversation is pulling out of your cup, that you are doing something to replenish your cup. One thing I like to recommend is to, if possible, not have another intense meeting set up right after it to really give yourself some space to decompress. Because even if the conversation goes well and you don't experience in the moment like heightened emotions, chances are because it's an uncomfortable dialogue, your emotions are heightened. Your body is probably tense. And you're just because you're in it, you're not necessarily aware. So after that dialogue, give yourself some space to breathe and relax and decompress. All right, ladies. So we had quite a few tips for you today. So be sure to listen to our recap and take what resonates and leave the rest. So number one is know your audience and context. Number two, be open minded. We all have different experiences. Number three. Think ahead regarding consequences of your words and actions. And number four, setting ground rules or safe words. Number five is keep the focus of the conversation away from comforting the other person. Number six, have a purpose or goal in mind. Number seven, use those I statements. Number eight, lean into curiosity. And number nine, probably the most important, pour into yourself before and after the conversation. Hey lady, it's Terry here from the Herspace podcast, and I have a question for you. Do you want to start your own podcast? Have you been thinking to yourself, you know what? I want to start a podcast, but you just haven't taken the leap. If that's you, I got you. I'm hosting a free podcasting masterclass where I'm going to teach you how to create your own podcast from start to finish. So visit terrylomax.com and click on the pink link in the middle of your screen and register for my free podcasting masterclass. Thanks for joining us today in Her Space. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but it is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerSpacePodcast, or check out our website at HerSpacePodcast.com. And before we meet again, repeat after me. I am not limited by any past thinking. I choose my thoughts with care. We'll see you next week, lady.